This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Literary Treks, your dedicated Star Trek books and comics show here on the Trek FM network. I'm one of your hosts, Dan Gunther, and joining me, as he does every week, and looking particularly animated this week, is my co-host, Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how's it going? I feel very animated, very flat. It's I'm, I'm been <laughs> very two dimensional, two dimensional. <laughs> I'm kind of wearing pink and purple. It's oh, yeah. I'm, I'm noticing that a lot. It's yeah. my new color scheme. Now you were kind of walking around and I noticed in for a moment, your left arm kind of disappeared. That was a little weird. Yeah. I well, I, you would think it's because of the animation of myself, but really I can separate my body into different parts and float them around. Oh, wow. (laughs) Well, uh, for those of you out there who might understand some of the references we're making here, you might recognize them from the animated series. And we've got a really exciting feature coming up later. We're talking about the newly published Star Trek, the official guide to the animated series by Aaron Harvey and Rich Sheppis. And uh, we've got Aaron Harvey in the feature, we're going to be talking with him about that book, so stay tuned. Really excited for that one. But before we get there, we do have a little bit of news to get to. <laughs> Breaking news in the Star Trek literary universe. Um, so recently, at the time of recording, the first issue of the Star Trek Discovery Aftermath series from IDW has been released. Now, we're going to do something a little different with this comic. And we've, we've done this sort of thing before, but we're going to give this another try. Yes, we're going to it's, read it upside down, standing on our heads. Exactly. And we're thinking the increased blood flow to the cerebellum. No. <laughs> what we're actually going to do is, instead of reading each issue as it comes out and reviewing it on the show, we're going to put them all together once the entire miniseries is released and do them as a separate feature in and of itself. So uh, this is just your heads up. Keep an eye out for that issue number one. It has been released. We're not going to cover it just yet. 
but we will eventually. So you'll want to pick those up. But this looks like a really exciting series. So it's definitely one that I've really been looking forward so to. So have you read this first issue, Dan? I've glanced at it. I haven't read it yet. I know. I've, I've read it. Oh, I'm, I, I, I'm really excited to. It looks really good. The artwork looks really interesting. Yeah, the too. artwork's really good. I'm not giving any spoilers. I'm not reviewing it, but you know, this does involve uh, from Discovery Pike and Number One and Spock, and then we have the Klingons like Laurel. Um, I'll just leave it there. <laughs> Definitely looking forward to that, and you can look forward to hearing our reviews of that as all of the issues kind of come out later. So, yeah. <laughs> so in the next bit of news, uh, you may know of a book that's coming next year on March 3rd, 2020 from Dayton Ward comes Star Trek, the Kirk Fu manual, a guide to Starfleet's most feared martial art. And over on Dayton Ward's website, he has a few preview pages up, uh, showing what some of that content will look like. And, just kind of uh, glancing at it here, I'm loving this uh, art style. The bit we're shown here is Kirk putting, you know, the Gorn in that headlock that, you know, is pretty ineffective when it came to the Gorn. Uh, or actually, no, I think he's slamming the Gorn's ears, yeah, if I'm looking at I it think correctly. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and all these different other poses that uh, you can do different moves with your arms to be like Kirk. Mm -hmm. his fighting. I really want to learn how to do that one move where he comes sailing in and knocks three guys over because he's, you know, flying in sideways, almost as though he's been thrown by a couple of other people. I, I don't know how he managed that move exactly, but, you know, it's almost as though there's two people off to the side of the camera throwing him through the scene. Um, yeah, but that know. would be so unrealistic. I doubt that could ever happen yeah that doesn't make sense i i just yeah we need to figure out how how kirk does that yeah it's, it's like incredible. in the 1950s superman series you know he would go flying out a window and my brother's like oh he's just jumping through a window i'm like no he really flies come on exactly oh come man on. exactly yeah. but yeah these preview pages of kirk Fu can be seen at daytonward.wordpress.com yeah, and definitely check those out. Really excited for this one. This is one that's been delayed a few times. It's been pushed uh, publication-wise uh, down the road a little bit. But it looks like this March 3rd, 2020 date is when we'll be getting our hands on that. So we'll definitely have to cover that and hopefully maybe get to talk to Dayton about it too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, the final little bit of news we have is a new cover to reveal and look at and drool over, which is always exciting. I love when new covers are released. A new cover. I just like <laughs> want to harken back to the days of Matt Rushing singing about covers. There you go. Excellent. Well, this cover is for the newest Star Trek Discovery novel, which is coming out in on December 17th. It's called Dead Endless, and it's written by Dave Gallanter, one of my favorite authors. He's written some great Star Trek books. Uh, if you've ever heard me rave about Troublesome Minds, that's one of my favorite Star Trek novels. But uh, the cover for this has been revealed. And I have to say, I think this might be my favorite Star Trek Discovery novel cover. Stop it. I really Stop like this it. one. I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> I really well because every every cover we've had I mean they've been nice on discovery but it's just you know basically a character profile 
Yeah. Or the Enterprise. Like, yeah, we've got the Enterprise. That was a little different, but all the other ones have been like publicity shots of the characters over kind of a, a nebula background or something like that. Uh, this one, you know, similar in color, it's got kind of a nebula background, but the shot we get of Stamets uh, kind of looking off into the distance and in his head, the, we kind of see Culber and the mycelial network. And we have these kind of radial lines coming out showing, you know, I'm, I'm guessing like his connection to the spore network and stuff. And, and it's really quite beautiful. I really like this one. So I'm assuming this gets your stamp of approval. It absolutely does. Good. Same here. <laughs> Perfect. So yeah, this one, uh, as you can guess from the cover we've described, it centers around Stamets and the discovery becoming trapped in the mycelial network and a kind of adventure around that. So this one is also cool because it looks to be the first Star Trek Discovery novel that actually takes place primarily on the USS Discovery. So hmm. that's kind of nice. What a concept. That's interesting. <laughs> Crazy. Well, before we get to that uh, feature that I talked about earlier, why don't we check out some Babel Conference feedback from Literary Treks 280, The Regellians Are Psycho. So this was the episode in which uh, Barry DeFord and Shashanka Varu from Polytrex joined us and we talked about the first four issues of Star Trek Early Voyages from Marvel Comics. And uh, kicking off the comments here, we have Christopher Baca, who says, loved those old comics. Short and sweet, great comment. And I absolutely agree. I loved those comics, as I'm sure uh, you got from that episode. And we might have to revisit these sometime. I, I have to say that I've been thinking about reading the next issues after this, even though it's not currently scheduled for literary tracks, but <laughs> eh, we'll see. And then we have Stefan Setz saying, getting ready for your episode first read. And he's got the, um, the Omnibus Volume 2 of, the, um, of these comics. So, yeah, th these came out in uh, different forms. We were talking about the ones that are recently out in Eagle Moss, but this was prior to that. And this is, this is a really cool release. This actually contains all 17 issues of the early voyages. So if you get your hands on this one, it's called Star Trek Omnibus Volume 2, The Early Voyages. Uh, and it was put out in 2009. So uh, you might find copies of that floating around out there uh, if you want to read those as well. Justin Ozer says, Great discussion. These sound very interesting. I tried to see if I can locate them, but the only edition I could find was Star Trek Omnis Omnibus Volume 2, which we ta just talked about. Um, and he had wanted to get them one collection of four issues at a time. Now, they are available as the Graphic Novel Collection Volume 9. Uh, he checked a couple places, Amazon and Thrift Books, but it was unavailable. Now, thankfully... Eagle Moss actually sells them directly on their website. So if you go to the, uh, the comment thread in the Babel conference for this episode, uh, Bruce has put a link there to the Eagle Moss store where you can buy the issue or the, uh, the issue of the graphic novel collection that collects these first four issues. So, uh, yeah. 
Thanks for that, Bruce. Yeah, links to shop.eaglemoss.com and the whole link's there that gets you to that section. But if you typed in the URL, you'll probably have to search around for it. But yeah, they're there. You can find them. each. I, I used to think that the Eagle Moss collection, you had to sign up and they would send you each issue. It was like a you know ongoing plan, which they still offer. But I had no idea until we started doing this show uh, or this episode that they are selling each individually. So you can pick mm-hmm. one or the other, whichever one you want. Yeah. So if you don't get the whole collection, you won't have the cool, you know, spine art all making sense yes. on your shelf, which, you know, that's how they'll get you. Really, they want you to buy them all. That's what you want. But you do. don't have to. You don't have to. But that's you. You want to. You know, you want yeah. to. Yeah. So do it. Just just sign up and get them all. Right. <laughs> Stop saying that, Bruce. I just might. <laughs> <laughs> well, Oz Trekkie says this series is one of the few non-IDW series that he's enjoyed reading. Seeing the cage from another point of view was an interesting way to tell the story. I, you know, gosh, yeah, that's that's the thing that really stood out to me. It's like, you know, I'm like, oh, here we go, linking to the cage. But it did it so well in an interesting way and looking at it differently. I, it. Mm. Oh, I I don't even know how to say it. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's uh, I love that it's not just a retelling. It's a total, you know, it's the same story, but just from a different perspective with a little more context around. It's so good. Listen to that episode. You'll know exactly what we're talking about. Now, before we get to that feature that I'm sure you're all eagerly awaiting, we do have an email from listener Matt Downs that we'd like to share yeah, so Matt emailed us, which you guys can do too, from the Trek FM website. But he says, Greetings, gentlemen. I have been listening to your podcast for several months now and have rather enjoyed listening to your book reviews and interviews of some really great Trek writers. I look forward to a new episode each week to get my Trek fix. I am really looking forward to your review of the Picard Countdown comic when it hits the stands. Thank you for a really fun and entertaining podcast. And then he emailed us again saying, one last note. Okay, actually two last notes. One, Bright Eyes reminds me of Planet of the Apes in reference to the comment about it reminding Dan about Bonnie Tyler and Total Eclipse of the Heart. And number two, Pet Rock, (laughs) everyone knows Kirk would watch archival episodes of TJ Hooker. (laughs) So yeah, that was on a previous episode about uh, Star Trek Year 5, I think issue number 4. Five is what we I think that's doing. right. Yeah. yeah. Um, great points. I love that. Um, first of all, that's just now in my head continuity. Kirk watching TJ Hooker just saying there's just something about this TJ Hooker guy that I can really get behind. You know, like, I love that. I, I can totally see that. And Spock's watching old episodes of Mission Impossible or In Search of. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> excellent well thank you matt so much for that email that was uh that's great and uh yeah um bonnie tyler total eclipse of the heart that's the closest you'll get to me singing on uh, literary tricks so, so there you go and I'm, I'm proud of you you didn't go there again just now turn around oh, no. Oh, no. bright eyes <laughs> how many speakers and eardrums did i just blow out there i am so sorry <laughs> Well, that's our final episode of Literary Treks there. <laughs> well, I guess seeing as this is our final episode, uh, it's not actually, but let's jump into the feature and uh, talk to our special guest, Aaron Harvey, about the animated series. 
So as we mentioned at the top of the show, we have what I think is going to be a pretty special episode today. Uh, we're talking about the official guide to the animated series with one of the authors, Aaron Harvey. So Aaron, thank you so much. And, and you're not a stranger to Trek FM, but thank you for joining <laughs> us on our show. Well, you're welcome. Yeah, I, I feel like a stranger lately just because I haven't had time to... I mean, this is what I was doing instead of podcasting, so... <laughs> well, then we've definitely benefited from uh, the, the network's uh, temporary loss. So <laughs> thank you so much for that. Yeah, this was our way to get you on literary treks by having you write a book. We, exactly, we nearly yeah. actually put literary treks in the book as like a little section for talking about the, the books of Star Trek. But we are, you know, we didn't have like 900 pages. So some things had to get cut. <laughs> Darn. Yeah. So close. It was almost called Saturday Morning Trek. Hmm. Yeah. Well, we should begin with that. Of course, uh, listeners might know you from Saturday Morning Trek, the uh, podcast about the animated series that you did uh, for some time here on Trek FM. Um, this love of the animated series is obviously something that goes back some time. So I'm kind of curious when you were first introduced, maybe to Star Trek as a whole, but then also to the animated series specifically, and where that passion for it comes from. Uh, just, I was introduced to Star Trek in general by my grandfather, um, when I was really little. Uh, I just remember sitting, watch, having him watching the show and and watching it with him. And I think I discovered the animated series on my own. I was probably like five or six, something like that. Um, and it was one of those, oh, Star Trek is coming on. And you're at that age where it's like, you can't tell the difference with the intro, if it's going to be live action or not, because they do look, you know similar enough and the music when you're a little kid you can't necessarily discern that much of a difference um and then it would be always be the thing i wasn't expecting be like oh it's the the live action one darn or oh it's the animated one i wanted the live action one (laughs) but i just remember that as a kid wondering it's like how come i can't conjure that uh the one that i want it's just like not understanding programming and when shows were on and time wise (laughs) but um the i think the passion for it comes from uh, I grew up in an era that, you know, when you're in your, when I was like 12, 14, there wasn't an internet. I couldn't prove that the show existed. So I would tell people about this animated Star Trek show. And that's actually where from our podcast, it's like, yes, there is an animated series came from because people wouldn't know it existed. Or you'd say there was the animated Brady kids. Like, no, there wasn't. Oh, I love that. I have the whole uh, box set. Of <laughs> yeah, that. I, do. <laughs> I really do. Oh, you do? <laughs> that's where yes. animated Wonder Woman first showed up on, uh. I know um, it's exciting. Brady kids. That's funny. We'll have to do a spin-off podcast about just the Brady kids. Um, Absolutely. Count me in. All right. I'm actually curious enough that I would totally listen to that. <laughs> that's that's wild. I have no I have no idea about this whole side of the I, Brady world. I'm thinking oh, it's that, trippy. Maybe this will be like a, if somebody's listening to this and and next April shows up, they might know what's happening. <laughs> a little April Fools uh, podcast. Um <laughs> So, no, I just, for me, it was like, I've always liked animation. I've liked illustration. And I think there was a part of me who always thought I was going to grow up and be an animator until I actually figured out how tedious some of animation actually is, at least back then. Um, that I, and I have this problem where I have a little bit of a hard time drawing the same character from frame to frame. They sort of mutate and they don't look exactly the same. So, Animation was something I was always very interested in, and I would write filmation, and they would send me stuff. And and so, I was just 
excited because I always liked Star Trek and that there was this cartoon and it always felt like I had this hidden 22 episodes that no one else had known about. And I have these stories and I, when they would reference something Spock's childhood or whatever, and I would know where it came from. It was kind of like when, when Doctor Who came to America, I was like, no, 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 no. It's not my thing anymore. Like the secret thing that only people who watched PBS <laughs> late at night knew about, you know, or whatever. So it was kind of a, you know, a, anything in the 1970s for Star Trek for me is cool because half the time it doesn't feel like it, it, it existed or you wonder how it actually came to be. How Star Trek, the motion picture ever made it to the screen is a miracle. If you listen to, you know, all the stories, there's just so much drama behind that. And there's movies that never were made in the 70s. So it's just, it's all part of that, that crazy decade, that kind of a lost decade of Star Trek. I definitely remember, like, the thrill of being the only one in my little circle of friends when Core mentions that my ship at the time was the IKS Clothos. And yeah. I'm like, oh! yep. That's awesome. <laughs> it was, it's, uh, yeah, just that kind of thing. Or when you see Shakar for the first time and you're just like, oh, that's kind of what it looked like in the cartoon. And yeah, the Vulcan uh, <laughs> main city. So yeah, no, it was, that was the, I think that's where my, my passion for that show came from. Yeah. I don't know about you, Dan, but did you, when did you start catching the animated series? For me, it was just kind of sporadic. Every once in a while, I'd catch it somewhere. Yeah, actually, my memory is is very similar to Aaron's there. I remember watching Star Trek as a kid and kind of being like, oh, it's that cartoon one. And and like it would show up. We had satellite and it would show up in the satellite guide just as Star Trek. So that's what it was called because the yeah, the series had the same title. So I was just kind of. I, I hate to say it, like at the time, I was always kind of vaguely disappointed when it was the <laughs> animated one. <laughs> but I, I, I had this awareness that it was out there. And I think in my kid brain, it was just some of the episodes are live action and some of them are animated. More often live action, but there's a few animated ones in there too, which is kind of neat, you know? Yeah. So you worked with a co-writer on this book, Rich Shepis, and uh, I'm assuming he's... he definitely seems as passionate about the animated series as you were in in the kind of opening words of the book there. Yeah, I think he's he's just passionate about Star Trek in general too. Just there's, there's a we both uh write a Trek movie and so that's kind of how we connected. Um but yeah, he's he's the amount it's funny because he's learning stuff along the way because we did our research together. So there was things that I had known from my podcast that he was just like, oh, that explains this. And so it was a lot of fun to watch the connections being made and stuff. And uh, so I'm curious, how did you, you mentioned, of course, that you wrote together at Trek Movie. Mm-hmm. How was that decision made to uh, pursue this project and, and work towards getting it published? Uh, we were in a, a Slack channel, basically, just sort of chatting and I was saying that like having the podcast is great, but it's also, I, I miss having visuals or, you know, like, that's why I, the, the last episode that we had d- done was a, a very long episode about the, the, uh, SS Bonaventure, which was a ship that was seen for about two seconds in the time trap. And we had its whole history and we talked with the designer and all this stuff. Um, and he said that he would like to actually, you know, work on something that, isn't just kind of an article or something that it would be great to work on a, a larger project and, you know, something where you get paid basically. <laughs> and, um, why don't we pitch, uh, some sort of animated series book together? 
And we're like, oh, that would be really cool. So we basically started working on, we wrote a sample chapter and I took and designed it and mocked it up and made it, you know, look like a, an open book. And, it, you know, it wasn't exactly the same proportions as we, we ended up with, but close. Um, and we showed it to a couple people and they're just like, you really shouldn't have made a book already. I mean, you have to see if they're going to like, you know, I'm like, no, 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 this is all done on a computer. <laughs> So there was this uh, weird belief that we had actually gone out and had something printed. I'm like, no, no, no. Um, so we, you know, talked to a few people that we knew in the Star Trek world about like how to best go about getting this, you know, sent out to to people. And we came across uh, Mike Johnson, who writes for IDW. And I've worked with him on a couple of comic book covers. And he's friends with John Van Sitter. So it was kind of like he goes, "Hey, I'll present it for you." So that's kind of how we we hmm. got the uh, the project out into the world. And then you're given the green light to go. And what was your reaction when you heard the yes? The well, the yes came uh, less than 24 hours after we sent the proposal. So I think wow. we were stunned. <laughs> yeah, because it's like that doesn't happen like that. We're like, oh well, we've got a couple publishers we're thinking of shopping it around to, and I'm like. No, no, wait, wait, back up. So that means you're, you, huh? You know, it's just sort of this, we're like, and this is all an email, but we're just like, I'm cool because I'm an email, but I'm at home, like freaking out, you know? Um, yeah, it was June of 2017 and like the day, next day, I think, uh, we got that message. And so he's, you know, John said, you know, it, it could take six weeks, six years, six months or six months, six years or never, you know, who knows if the, it depends on what publisher is interested. And so I sent a, a reminder to like, that was June, I'm like, okay, check back in December. We'll see how long, you know. <laughs> uh, September they go, Oh, uh, Weldon Owen publishing contacted us and said they were looking for an animated series book. Like, wow. okay. <laughs> what yeah. a coincidence. Yeah. That's crazy. Was, basically this is, don't take this as the average someone publishing a book because apparently this never happens. None of this is like, it's all like, I guess I've used up all of my book luck for the rest of my life now. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so yeah, we were, we were pretty stunned at how quickly things happened and then everything slowed down while they did contract negotiations until we could actually start working. Um, that was interesting, but, uh, but yeah, it, it happened very quickly and it just seemed like we hit the right time because it was about, it was right before they announced that they were going to be doing new animated Star Trek, but it was right after the 45th anniversary of TAS. So it was kind of in that window. It was actually, it was before the 45th anniversary because we wanted to kind of get it out for that date. But because of the way things worked, it just was the year after. Wow, that's just crazy. Because, yeah. you know, I mean, it's been so long. We've never had anything like this. Yeah. And also we're at a time where they've kind of backed away the publishers from reference books. Mm -hmm. So it is amazing that happened that quick. Yeah. And, it, and you know, I think it, it's reference, but it also has, you know, with the artwork and stuff, I think that helps. It's kind of it's like got a, history. Oh, yeah. There's a lot to it. Yeah. Yeah. We tried mm -hmm. to, you know, if, if we had our way, we would have it. It would have been thicker, probably, because we have other things that we could have put in there. Um, definitely one of the things we had talked about is that, you know, there's this apparently Gene gave the edict to um, Gene Ronberry to um the Okudas that in the encyclopedia that he does not want anything from the animated series unless it had somehow been referenced on live action Star Trek for into perpetuity. So I kind of wanted to have the encyclopedia, the Star Trek encyclopedia version 
in this book. So it would have been if we had our, you know, ultimate druthers and, and infinite time and infinite resources, um, the back, we would have had like a back section, which would have just been like the Star Trek encyclopedia, but for the animated series. So that's what we got out of that data hmm. bank is sort of the, the condensed version of that. That that would have been mm-hmm. cool. I'm just curious. Why do you think Gene Roddenberry didn't want this included in the encyclopedia? This this goes to the whole, you know, is Star Trek the animated series canon or not? Um, this is when it was unfortunately towards the end of his life. Um, he was getting lots of information from other people. And from what we've been able to gather, this is again, this is kind of like the ask three people about Star Trek, the motion picture. You'll get three different answers about what happened. Um that his lawyer was sort of whispering in his ear that if you take ownership of this cartoon, you're not going to be taken seriously in Hollywood. In fact, Filmation actually approached Gene about doing an animated Next Generation show, and that never happened. Um, wow. Yeah. And there, it was about that time that um, uh, Larry Niven was going to do an RPG, a role-playing game for the known space, his universe, which is the Kazinti. And that was in that one episode, uh, The Slaver Weapon. So there was, they didn't really want to have any kind of law, you know, law, uh, lawsuit to do with that. And Filmation was also dissolving at that point. And it was who was going to take ownership of all this stuff. So there was a lot of, we don't want to get involved in something that we don't need to. So just don't reference the animated series. And don't reference the animated series turned into this mutated, it's not canon. And, mm-hmm. you know, Dorothy said that he's never said that to her. You know, he's like never disowned it. So it was just, you know, there are other people around him basically saying, you know, it's a cartoon. Don't, you know, which is silly because even the people who were saying that were semi-involved in it in, a, in the original, like some of the older people. So I was like, eh. So I always think that it's it's really strange when they they go on about it not being canon. But um, so that is the roundabout answer as to why it was not included in the encyclopedia. Um, and I think that was, you know, never. I would say I don't know. I would say never say never. But I don't think at least while the Okudas are doing it, it's going to come come into the play. So. Mm-hmm. Well, it makes sense because at that time, the properties were all owned by Paramount, but yeah. the Filmation version may had not been owned by them at that time. It was like being sold to Hallmark. And that's one of the reasons we don't have like the musical tracks mm-hmm. is Hallmark basically dumped so much of this stuff when they got it and they threw away the original tracks of music. So, oh, yeah, that's, that's a, tragic. Yeah. <laughs> Kevin Dilmore of uh, Dayton Ward and Kevin Dilmore fame um, said that had he been working it got hired there about three years earlier. He would have known what those were and would have been able to save them. So it's like every time he thinks about that, it just gets sad. Wow. <laughs> oh, so he was the one who was responsible for getting the animated series ornaments out last year. So that was great. That's very cool. Yeah. Well, I, one of the things that I, I learned from this book that I think was the most interesting to me, and, and you can kind of see it when you watch the episodes, was that you know, they didn't approach this like a Saturday morning cartoon necessarily. They they didn't really separate it philosophically from the original Star Trek series. The The approach was very much you're writing for this show like you are writing for the original Star Trek series. And that kind of, um, you know, I don't want to denigrate other shows or anything, but right. that kind of elevated writing that you get 
you know, on a show like that as opposed to a Saturday morning cartoon. Yeah, there was also a benefit uh, at the time. There was a writer's strike in Hollywood and they were allowed to write one half hour animated script that was in the rules of the the union at the time. So they benefited from having all of the, you know, the some of the original Star Trek writers and these other science fiction writers like, hey, I'd like a paycheck. Um, so, you know, yeah. I, and you basically, you know, Dorothy approached them and said, you know, we're not writing this as a kiddie show. This is just Star Trek in a half hour format. So they approached it as such. And I think it really shows. And I'd actually be really curious to see what would have happened had that strike not happened. Like if would have they had to have gotten the people who traditionally write animated cartoons and would it have been drastically different? Like the I, Brady kids. Yeah, like the Brady kids, basically. <laughs> and Wonder Woman makes an appearance on the Enterprise. That would have been cool. <laughs> Actually, Darren and I did that when we had our, our super crew. We had like, what if our, we had to, to crew the Enterprise. I got the 1970s cartoon characters and he had 1990s cartoon characters. Like, who would you choose for your captain? Who would you choose for, you know, so, yeah. <laughs> I think I had Captain oh, Captain great. Wonder Woman or something like that. It's like, yeah, <laughs> he had better characters to choose from. I had like you know talking gorillas and things like that. And he had, <laughs> he had basically he had Professor X. He could have Captain Picard at the you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> All right. You can check that out oh, in the archives cool. of Earl Grey somewhere. It's like or not I even mean, our show. Sorry, of Saturday Morning Trek. We'll definitely have to check that out <laughs> for sure. So uh, putting this book together, you and Rich, you, you talked a little bit about kind of the genesis of it. Mm -hmm. Once you got the green light and you kind of started working on that, what was that process like? Maybe like how long did it take and, and you know, what were you not able to do? What do, was a must have and that sort of thing? Right. Um, well, one of the things we had, you know, we've been told like, uh, you know, don't start working until the the contract is signed because you never know it could fall apart, you know. And, and since this had happened so quickly, we didn't know, you know. But we still were like, okay, we need to make outlines. We need to do notes. And so there's a lot of like just getting ready to, to go that we did over the course of like seven or eight months. Um, and we were li lining up interviews and, and all that. So basically, we, we did interviews together. Rich took notes and then he started kind of organizing what the the thrust of the the chapter would be as far as these buckets that we created um and i would you know work on doing the layout and we tried to make something that we could use over and over again and it worked for the most part it was uh, i think if i did this again i mean i'm happy with the way it turned out and everybody really likes kind of the the I tried to make it feel as animated as the show did. In fact, the the best compliment I got is that it looked more animated than the show. So that was kind of funny. Um, <laughs> but uh, that, you know, it, it's the layout is more complicated than it really needed to be. So doing that for chapter after chapter got really complicated. Um, but I think the most challenging thing was just taking the art scanning it in and a lot of them they used photocopies basically uh for a lot of things in uh filmation because they would make copies of something and bring it over and then people would outline it and so sometimes you'd have a copy of a copy of a copy so it had the as as dr uh, pulaski would say replicative fading you know <laughs> um 
and I would bring it in and then darken it and play with it. And, and some of it, having it look sketchy is great because it actually, you feel like, okay, this is an artifact. Um, but there was sometimes when I was like, I had to go in and kind of hand outline some of the copy just to make the, the text readable. And, um, so that was challenging and just being on different coasts was challenging too. Um, you know, there's a time difference. So trying to meet at a specific time, we ended up, you know, I, I would meet during the day. Um, and you know, and then you get the, everybody has the cranky days and stuff like that. So you're just, you know, you are, are argue over like two words and later you're like, why did we argue over that? You know, just (laughs) so, um, uh, one of the things we wanted to do was compare the novels from Alan Dean Foster to the actual episodes because about halfway through, until halfway through, they were basically going by the scripts. And the scripts were not exactly what was actually put out there. Um, the first drafts of the scripts. A lot of times there's stuff that just completely got dropped. Um, and then towards the end, it started to align more with that. But he'd always add like a ha- another half to it. So it's almost so you get like the second part of yesteryear or the second part of... And sometimes they didn't exactly connect. But it would have been nice to have the time to have gone through that and then a synopsis. But we had 160 pages and there was just no way to get the artwork in and the everything that, you know, CBS's main goal was episode. So, you know, all the other stuff we kind of had to just hint at. Um, and it would have been great. Yeah, but to, you did call out, you did call out the novels though. Yeah, we called them out. Yeah, it would just, yeah. it would have been nice to have been mm-hmm. able to to do story because each, each novel had a, there was a, a story in, uh, an episode each had a story. Yeah. But yeah, no, we, I mean, we did call it out. Um, and it would have been nice to have, um, uh, a little bit more space to talk about filmation itself and maybe, you know, some of the, the, there wasn't really a lot of marketing or, or stuff for the animated series, but to have maybe talked about some of the seventies toys or in that era that, you know, but that kind of, then you drift away from the animated series, but that, I mean, the, the end of the end chapter where we talk about the merchandise and stuff that we, that there was, was kind of cool. So I love a lot of the artifacts that you were able to show <laughs> in, in the book. I think my absolute favorite is the, uh, and I, I, the name's escaping me right now, but the 19 year old who wrote a script and it had been typed out on like loosely yes. lined paper. Yes. That was, I, I love that. He said, this will tell you where I, I was at that. with college. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was Howard, uh, Weinstein. Um, oh, of course. Howard yes. Weinstein. Right. Uh, yeah, he sent us some great stuff there, you know, like his, the check, (laughs) uh, the telegram that he got from like the fact that you get a telegram was just great. Like, Hey, we're going to get your, buy your script. Um, so that was, that was pretty funny. Um, oh, there is, there's, there are two things that I would have liked to have put in, but they were, I think like rights prohibitive basically. Um, this one might not have been, but we didn't really find a, a good place for it. There was among all of the stuff that that Bob Klein, the animator, let us borrow, there's just a little cut out uh, storyboard frame, and where Spock's viewer was, he had drawn Spock as a Muppet. Oh wow! So it was just hmm. this this like a uh, <laughs> kind of Bert looking, um, you know, uh, <laughs> Spock. So that was pretty funny. I'm just like, I'm going to find oh, a place to use that in something. Um, and then the other one is <laughs> is something that we discovered. Uh, Bob Klein was really generous to give us so much stuff. And I had his, basically his, uh, inspiration resource folder and it was, uh, 
like stickers from Star Trek. There were black and white um, photos of the props from the set um, and boxes of uh, the AMT uh, models from the 70s. Like they just cut them out and so they could reference the ships and uh, stuff like that, blueprints. and But there was uh, a slide in there, like a reverse color slide that you would print. And so I'm looking at it and I'm like, is that... Sp- is that who is that I, I couldn't figure out who these people were so i stuck it on my my scanner and scanned it in and reversed it and it was the live action uh, f- uh captain marvel from filmation i'm like oh, oh this, wow. this must have just accidentally got in here but i <laughs> then immediately went and watched the counterclock incident for something i was doing and realized that Carl four, that would be Carla five's son, who is older than she is because time goes backwards in that episode. Um, that none of that made sense. Uh, (laughs) that's the one episode that I'm like, there are some things that were left out of that, that kind of explain some things, but that planet, it was weird. Um, the, uh, if you look at Carl four and you look at, uh, Les Tremaine who played mentor, they are exactly the same. They have like the same haircut. Hmm. The clothing is nearly Clothes, identical. Yeah, I know and, that. <laughs> and it turns out that he's like, oh, yeah, I totally use that as a reference. So so that was something <laughs> that we discovered that we didn't know before. That it's like that Carl Four was, you know, from a Shazam character. And that would be something I really wanted to put those two pictures in side by side. But with the Shazam movie that just came out and everything. And I don't know how annoying that would be. to. There was a, a picture that we really wanted to to put in as well. It's the only picture of all three of them recording, um, uh, Shatner, mm. um, Nimoy and, uh, um, <laughs> DeForest, Kelly. DeForest Kelly. Thank you. Wow. Um, and that was another one of those. It was owned by the LA times. So it would have cost mm. us an arm and a leg to print it because they, their rights prices for it. Um, it was funny because Fred Bronson, who wrote that episode we just talked about, the counterclock incident, under the pseudonym of uh, John Culver, because at the time he was the NBC publicist. He could he told us when he called the newspaper, who came out and took the photo, what time of day it was. So ev- we knew everything about this photo, oh. and it wouldn't have been taken if he hadn't asked them, but we couldn't use it because of it's you know technically owned by the LA Times. So that was a little sad. But uh, hmm. if I become independently wealthy, I'm going to buy that photo. <laughs> Use it for something. It, it's just interesting to me how much material you're able to find, like physical material, the scripts and the, and the sketches. And I mean, it's just where were you able to just gather all that? A garage about 15 minutes from here, <laughs> believe it or not. Really? Yeah, it's <laughs> wow. Well, um, Roddenberry has a bunch of stuff, um, but a lot of it is just paperwork. And then they had some cells that were in not the best shape. Um, and I was like, okay, well, you know, that's an option. And then we, I talked to Bob Klein, who I had interviewed for Saturday Morning Trek. Um, and he's like, yeah, come on over and let's go look through my garage and see what we find. I'm like, okay. So I drive over there and I was greeted to two, you know, those fold out tables that you have for like picnics, two of those end to end with like three boxes that were like, you know, uh, larger than filed boxes and uh, like moving boxes size and just papers and folders that all had filmation on it just brought out. And some of them were actually of like Dungeons and Dragons and some of them were like not Star Trek, (laughs) but it was just 
all of this stuff. And I, my mind just like, I just like, what? <laughs> like, how is all this exist still? So it was basically, you know, when they went home, he just, you know, kept some photocopies and stuff. But there's some like completely original art. There's like original sketches of Eric's, which he, who he designed. Um, there was, do you remember in the back of Starlog magazine, they used to sell, maybe you don't, uh, in the 1970s, they would sell like reproduction production cells of like certain scenes oh, yeah. like there was the one of the the enterprise and the the um d7 uh fighting the klingon ship um oh. the outline of that the original is also in all of this stuff so it was just weird to like see like this image that i've known since i can remember in the back of these these uh magazines but just like the original before it was photocopied onto a cell and then somebody painted it and so that that was crazy to me. Just some how of that crazy stuff. is it that you're you're so into the animated series for all these years, watching it as a kid and and doing a podcast as an adult, and now you're actually touching the physical. Forms yeah, of yeah, these that was it, it, and the fact that he was like 15 minutes from my house. That was the other thing. It was just like I'll just hop on the car and drive down the street. Um, <laughs> that was just weird. Yeah, no, it was. I just keep thinking it's like I'm touching something that I saw on television when I was three, you know, or something like just like this weird, like if you could follow the piece of art, like it would, it would, you know, or whatever, just like, and then it would come back to like, it's like a loop, you know, it's just very, very strange. Um, yeah, there's something really cool about that too. It's just, uh, and the fact that, that Bob did, did the show when he was like 23, 24 or something like that. So, our age difference isn't gigantic compared to like a lot of people. If you are talking to somebody from the original Star Trek, who's only a few years before that, they might be 30 years, you know, removed from Bob or, or they're, you know, passed away already. So the fact that we had so many things in common and he was a graphic designer and we just, you know, it was just like talking to an old friend after about five minutes. So just that was really, really fun. And I think just getting to know, how that process worked back then and and just what the kind of the i know everybody rags on filmation and everybody but a lot of people do and like oh it's clunky and it's not but the fact that how fast they cranked stuff out on a weekly basis without computers was to me kind of impressive and the backgrounds that they made were beautiful i mean they might not be your style but they're not crappily put together they were they were really nicely done um so yeah, that that I just, I, I it was so much fun to to find that person and click with them, and then you know, and he he gave us introductions to a few other people too, so that that was helpful, and we got to talk with Larry Niven about the uh, Kazinti and the fact that Kazinti ships are pink, like if you read one of the books, there's like there's some of them are so this whole idea that oh he was freaking out about them being pink. He's like, I told Dorothy it was fine, but that's like, it's, it, that's where you get the weird stories that people tell. And then after a while, I think they probably just, whatever that story was just becomes real for them. And so mm-hmm. it's getting the, all this different information is, is really, really interesting. And that's one of the things I love about this book is that you have like the real firsthand information in here. And I mean, I grew up hearing all these stories that, you know, I now learn maybe there's a grain of truth or maybe they're just made from whole cloth. Yeah, like yeah. there's just nothing to them. And I, th- I think this is something that's really been missing because we have, you know, the compendium and, and the companion mm-hmm. for TNG and all of these things. And this was just this this kind of void that now that you've finally been able to fill, I think is really, really cool. 
We did have in the 70s B. Joe Trimble's compendium that had, you know, just had the quick synopsis of each chapter. So when we say it's like it's the first book, it's the first book dedicated to the animated series. Not that it's like it's the first mm-hmm. guy. Go- Sometimes it's we don't get to write the blurbs. So a lot of it was just like when they say <laughs> mostly canon. I'm like, I would never use the word mostly. <laughs> like, like, take that out. Um, so, you know, or just don't mention canon at all. One of the two. Uh, but yeah, so it, it existed, but not this complete, I don't think. And we, you know. For sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. And yeah, so a lot of the things that I learned in here, I, I thought were really fascinating. Even just the fact that, you know, only three episodes were done with the whole everyone assembled there yeah. together. You know, you have this image in your head of all of them sitting around a table, doing a table read and then mm-hmm. recording and that kind of thing. But that's just not how it was done. And and just little tidbits like that, I thought were really fascinating. It's funny you said that, Dan, because I was always of the assumption that they never recorded together. So I was surprised that they did three episodes hmm. together. Yeah, I, I expected that they did like an episode together. Because I kept getting multiple, like, you know, they never were together. They were always together. I'm like, well, they're not always together. It was just... They're, they're, they all live together in a garage yeah, exactly. 15 minutes from your house. <laughs> that's the animated actors. of like That's like that's the Brady kids, but done with the, the actors from Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> they live in a tree house, and they have a magical dog. And uh, no. <laughs> I'd watch that show. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Ping and Pong. Yeah. The whole yeah oh, God, the pandas. Yes. Shatner and Takei harping at each other. (laughs) And then Wonder Woman shows up. Perfect. (laughs) Hey, I think you have your uh, Trek FM blurb there. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Um, So kind of going into the layout of the book. Yeah. For for each episode, you have these different sections that kind of uh, are fairly uniform and talk a bit about, mm-hmm. you know, what's you've got a synopsis, you've got some of the uh, key events and, you know, interesting things about the production. One of the things that I really liked was you had a section for each episode called Something for the Kids. Yeah. And it was kind of like a lesson of the week, digging a little bit deeper into the message of the show. And, you know, that's kind of what Trek's all about. Mm-hmm. So I was just specifically with this part of it, was there anything that you learned or not even necessarily learned while writing the book, but have come to appreciate through your love of the animated series that stood out as particularly meaningful? Yeah, I think for me, what I took away from it is that, you know, even even watching it over and over again, it's still, you know, you can get into that mindset, oh, it's a cartoon. But Comparing this and like really diving in on a, I think sort of on an academic level going into it, I kind of didn't realize how uniform it was like the original series. There was really deep messages. I mean, there's stuff that you wouldn't see on any other cartoon in the 1970s. Um, you know, you've got uh, euthanasia, you have um, not uh, taking someone at face value because of how they look. Um, which I mean, yeah, I guess that would be in some cartoons, but it's done in a more subtle, less bonk bonk on the head, uh, kind of way. Um, and you know, this is kind of a, a story that I always tell when it comes to like how serious these shows were compared to other cartoons. Uh, if you remember in the 1970s, the, before the new cartoons of the season started, they tended to do like a half hour show on Friday night to like get the kids excited about what was coming next, next, you know, and they, they'd always have a theme. Like in the eighties, they did a back to the future themed, 
episode. Um, yeah. yeah, it was like back to next Saturday or something like that. With the I was always excited about those. It was like yeah. a preview of the new season. Yeah, exactly. And fun. Yeah. So this one was was one of the Osmond kids, and he was like a carnival barker, and it was just this like da 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 da. It's like so, and he's you know he did the Sigmund and the Sea Monsters, and like it's like. And it all rhymed, which I'm not going to remember what the rhyme was. It was like, you know, in Star Trek. And the clip that they pick is from the Pirates of Orion, where it's like, if we don't get this uh, drug, Spock is going to die. And then they start talking about the Babel, uh, the rules of the Babel conference. And like, you're, you're, you're pirates and, and now we're going to have to report you and da, da, da. And then they cut back and then the monsters. It was just like the tonal difference between the Sigmund and the Sea Monsters <laughs> Star Trek, where we're talking about Spock dying and, and basically <laughs> laws of space travel. And then back to the monsters. It's just like, it was so weird. Um, <laughs> So that's kind of how I see, you know, that probably one of the downfalls of the show, too, is just that it it was hard to do a cartoon for that kind of audience back then. Like today, it would have been like a Clone Wars or it would still be running. You know, it would have ran for several seasons. Um, I feel confident. Uh, in fact, at one point, Leonard Nimoy talked about it possibly moving to evening. And I think one of the reasons mm. it didn't move to the night, because we had, they had evening cartoons back then, like Flintstones, and there's one other one I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, the Jetsons? Maybe? No, it was like some, I, I feel like it's a knockoff of the, the Flintstones, like with like, in Roman times, or something like that. Mm. Oh, yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah something. Yeah. I feel like that was on the evening at one point, too. Jetsons may have been in the evening at some point, too. Um, but... I think the reason they didn't do that is if they went to the evening, then all the voice actors would have to get paid even more, probably, because of the Ooh. time slot it was in. Right. Um, but it could have, I think, probably could have, you know, lived at that time period, at least or, or the seven o'clock hour where, where it's more for kids slash adults. Right. But, uh, but yeah, so I, I think just all of those, th there's the, uh, the um, one of our planets is missing. To me, I always think of that as sort of the quintessential Star Trek episode because you have this mm -hmm. giant space cloud coming toward it's it's eating up planets as it goes along and it's headed towards a populated planet um and you know Kirk wants to blow it up because it's going to destroy this planet and Spock is like I think it's possibly sentient I think he was the one who decided that you know and basically reaches out and communicates with this thing and convinces it not to eat them and they go on their way and that that story could have been live action that could have been you know in discovery it could have been anything that it's just star trek um and and in that episode everybody had something to do uh uhura you know was was figuring out how to patch uh the communications through so they could uh, talk to this thing with using spock and scotty figured out how to take the uh the pieces of that was in, they were basically inside its stomach and like these pieces of the planet and stuff, they could regenerate their, their warp drive. And that was the first time we saw inside the warp nacelle. Um, <laughs> so there's just all these, like, it just felt so live action that, you know, you kind of forget, I mean, you don't forget that it's animated, but it does feel like those you know lost episodes of the original series. It does. I mean, I, I, I've, casually had seen episodes as years go went on i bought the dvd set a few years back but i never sat down and just like did a binge watch and when i knew this book was coming out it was just 
like in the back of my mind of, you know, I want to go back and start watching them all in a row. And I was doing that. And then the book comes out and I'm, I went back and read what, uh, the episodes I'd already seen and now I was mm-hmm. watching each episode that I had left and then each time I'd watch it I'd come back to your book and read you know the synopsis and the behind the scenes stuff and mm-hmm. all this information which was a lot of fun but the thing that really stood out to me as I'm watching one after the other is it's like you said it didn't feel like a kid show to me yeah it's yeah. animated but you can feel that the writers are freed up to, well, you know, I can have a big monster and, and we can make things feel more alien. And I was also surprised that there wasn't a lot of background that was being reused on episodes. I wasn't going like, oh, there's that background again. Yeah. That was just another episode. Yep. I mean, it's very unique things. And also mm-hmm. that we had a lot of uh, ensemble work more so mm-hmm. than the original series yep. with Sulu and Yahor and Scotty and Chapel. Yeah, no, I was I was really, you know, this is the first time that uh, Lieutenant Uhura got to take over the ship. She actually did it twice. You know, she was in command. Um, we had uh, Nurse Chapel was featured in the uh, the mud episode. Uh, we had uh, female security officers, and oh, that's that's one of the things that I forgot to talk about when we, things that we discovered. Um, looking at one of the earlier scripts in the Lorelei signal. Scotty had a female engineer, um, basically second in command to him. And she got written out. She was basically on the bridge. And I think they, there was just so many people in that one scene where they were, uh, hearing all the different voices. All the men are seeing all these different things. And you had Uhura and Chapel talking. I think if they had a third person, there just would have been a lot of, you know, there was no reason for her to exist basically. So they kind of took her out, which I thought was sad because it was like, oh, we had a female engineer. That would have been really cool. But on one, and I think it's in the book uh, in there, we point out her name is still in the panoramic storyboard where she was sitting. So hmm. that was pretty cool. So I, I want that character to come back like in a Dayton Ward story or something like that, where it's just this, you know, this person's just been named and that's all she is. But I really like that idea that there was this uh, security officer. I mean, I'm sorry, not security officer, but it's a, a chief engineer sidekick, basically. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I just, it's, there's just so much to it that's, uh, you know, I feel sorry for the binge watching, though, for the music, because there's only like 25 minutes <laughs> of music and you hear the same thing over and over again. <laughs> that's true. But it really didn't bother me. No, that's good. It did, yeah. I remember my, my favorite is whenever they're running somewhere and you hear that bump, 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 bump. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't like the way that women run. It's kind of weird. They don't uh, move their arms. Yeah, it's yeah, oh, it's they, very little. Oh yeah. Yeah. I had I think I drew a picture when when Uhura is supposedly like what she had she did the sprint and so many so much time on in when she referenced that in the episode the slaver weapon she's running across the ice but it looks like she's i don't know it's like she's and so i put her on a skateboard in a picture once because it just looked like she was skating <laughs> well yeah and speaking of the artwork because i know of course you're an artist and mm-hmm. i remember when discovery was coming on you were taking eric's and put them in a discovery uniform oh, yeah. I remember <laughs> yeah. you, would, you would send them to me and go what do you think of this what do yeah. you think of that and as I'm reading this book, I'm seeing certain things in here, like, you know, Yahora's like, you know, in a sound booth or whatever, like at a microphone oh, with yeah. headset. Like, is, is some of this artwork yours? Yes. Uh, that that was a fun... We did a... That is a, an homage to a poster that Filmation sent me when I was about 14 or 15 of He-Man and She-Ra illustrating their own show. 
And so we had talked oh, about cool. wanting to, you know, talk about like we want to do something quick and like here's how animation was in the 70s. And I was like, I remember that poster. But what really got or I, it, uh kind of generated the idea was Spock looking into his viewer looks so much like a person looking into a moviola when they're editing. It's like, OK, right. we have to do that. So that's what the genesis. And then we kind of worked backwards from that. So, yeah, so we uh, that was just a lot of fun to put together and, you know, and drawing the chair and, uh, behind Kirk and trying to get him to, like, not look like he doesn't know how to type or something, basically, because it's like I just like, you know, what is it? The uh, stone knives and bear skins when you see uh, Captain Janeway typing, she was using like weird finger movements and stuff. So that's kind of what I was trying to replicate. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, oh, that's really but cool. But yeah, and the people, we just like, oh, there's there's all these people who make logical sense to be, you know, sound voice recording with Uhura. So she's got her hand up by the, the headphones and, and Eric's with his multi arms to, to move the picture and take the picture and do all the stuff at the same time with the, uh, the photographing board. So, yeah, that was a lot of fun. And the cover is mine, even though they're like, you know, it's, it's a familiar... Um, stances of the characters we redrew it so it could be vectored which means it can be scaled mm. up or scaled down and it's just you know that is my work um in the very back we have our author bios where we drew ourselves as animated series characters <laughs> that one i was like i liked that that one it's fun but it was like it's hard to draw yourself it's just like i guess that's me you know and rich was really happy with his so i'm like all right i guess i you know people like it so that's good you mean you didn't go in that garage and go, wait a second, there's an yeah. animated thing of me here. What? That would be funny. Uh, no, so, but there are actually in the show, um, there are three, three or four people. Three. Yeah, four. There's four, four yes. people. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was watching that episode, I'm like, wait a second. Those, those people look like they're probably they're people that worked sp- on the show. Yeah. And your book then proved it. <laughs> yeah. They're very specific. Well, one of them had glasses on. So when they talk about right. like, oh, Kirk was the first person to have glasses in Star Trek or whatever. It's like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> that would be Herb Hazelton. Um, yeah. No, that was, that was a lot of fun. Just, and those little things, just finding stuff like that is, you know, and there's, I'm sure there's a couple other people in there and I just, it, there's only so many people around to like look at it and and what you what sticks out to you is something that no one who worked on the show would even have remembered or filed away so yeah. it might be some of those things are going to be just be lost to time unfortunately but yeah there's so many little things in here that that I really appreciate and one of the things that really stood out to me was Billy Simpson from yes. yesteryear who did the voice of young Spock mm-hmm. I love the fact that he comes in for an audition and they just have him read the whole script he goes home then gets the call they got the part but well you already read the script we recorded it you're done yeah <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome and I think Dorothy would have wanted him to come back in because he mispronounced uh Ichaya. And right, yeah. because he did not have the description of the or the the what is it, the phonetic spelling, because they only gave him the pa- this is how we this was our our fun detective investigation because she nobody ever knew why it was misspelled or mispronounced because he had the script and why it's like and then Billy told us Billy it's not Billy anymore William um, and if you watch <laughs> listen to Doctor Demento there's whimsical Will that's him. So hmm. he's from, oh, okay. yeah, he's, uh, he, he worked with Dr. Demento for however long. Um, so he's a, a music guy, but, um, sorry, sidetrack, uh, that <laughs> <laughs> that's what this book feels like. Sometimes it's like this multi-pronged sidetrack of, then it comes back and 
then you're back to the, you know, Tiberius Kirk or something. Um, so the detective work that we did was he told us that he only got the pages with his uh, lines on it. And we knew that the uh, phonetic spelling was a separate page that came above the top copy. So hmm. comparing those two, we were like, oh, he never got that page. So he never would have known how to say He just said it the best he could. And since that was just a, you know, audition and it's possible that, that the people recording it didn't, you know, look, um, they made everybody else change their pronunciation of how they said Ichaya. And, and Dorothy was, uh, was upset because she said it made the Vulcan language sound ugly, basically. So, you know, it's like, and if you're the writer and she wrote that episode, I can see that I would be like miffed if my, uh, if I did something and they just, Oh no, we just changed the pronunciation because the kid didn't know how to say it, you know? Yeah, but we're so used to it now that I I, oh, I yeah. never thought anything wrong with it. Yeah. <laughs> and off the top of my head, I do not remember what the correct pronunciation was, but it was like, it was a little smoother somehow. It like, it did, it did feel a lot more flowy, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, I, yeah, it would be very strange now to have it something else. Mm-hmm. It's like that one, uh, Deep Space Nine where the, it kept calling it the, the Trill Council or the Trill Doctor. It's Jadzia. Instead of Jadzia. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Jadzia. I'm like, well, who's Jadzia? You know, it's like. Well, even the Orions are what? Was, the Orions. Or- yes. The Orions. No yeah. one knows how that happened. Or they're not saying, at least. <laughs> yeah. Howard is just like, I, it was news to me when it came out because that was not. They are, they are Orions. That's what they were supposed to be. That's how they're spelled. So, yeah, that, w- that was something we did not, unfortunately, uncover. Yeah, that's that's one thing that I distinctly remember when I got the DVDs and I watched through. Yeah. I was like sneering in disgust <laughs> at the television at that. And it was interesting to learn in this book that the kind of issues with the animated series second season kind of almost mirrored what what happened in the third season of the original series mm-hmm. a little bit. A little that, bit. Was, that was really interesting and I had no idea. Um, you know, A, why there were only six episodes in season two and and, you know, the fact that, you know, Roddenberry kind of stepped away a little bit and other kind of changes happened as well. That was that was all really fascinating. The six episodes isn't necessarily because of that happening, though, because back then cartoons, if they, they were purchased, they tended to be purchased in a longer first season and a shorter second season. And then oh. they would run them into syndication and their their thought process was kids don't know the difference between new and old episodes which I always resented because yes, yes, we did. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. But if you notice <laughs> in the second season, one, one positive note to that is that things started looking a little bit more creative, like some of the backgrounds or more backgrounds. Um, the ships were really interesting. The, 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 the ship that Carla five had was um, it was not uh, symmetrical, like the left and right side had different, pieces um and that was basically because bob and a couple other people were just sort of like well you've done this for so long now just go ahead and do it there wasn't a lot of art direction from their art director and it was just sort of Hmm. so they got to do a little bit more and and have some uh, there was a lot more i think even the character art there was a little bit more of the of a new way of moving around and they had some really cool stuff like was it the um eye of the beholder the there's like you know Kirk grasping his head in pain and and there's just like some things that we just never saw that was custom made for those episodes which was nice to 
that they were able to do that. So I think there was a little bit more creative freedom for the, the designers. Um, but yeah, there was the, you know, Dorothy leaving and, uh, Gene kind of stepping away, sort of left it on autopilot a little bit. And Bem was supposed to be in the first season. That was, uh, it was funny cause we, we had all these numbered episodes and we were like, we thought we were going to crack that there was a missing episode that nobody had ever heard of. And we found out it was just a numbering system that they just picked out Bem and moved it to the second season. And we're like, darn um. it. So it's like this, this, <laughs> this number just doesn't exist. It's just, they just took the number out. It was like, oh, all right, great. Because we're like, it kept hmm. saying, you know, episode 23. We're like, no, that's not 23 episodes. So it like duplicate. It took the number out of season one, put it into season two, but never deleted the whole numbering system or shifted the numbering system. So it ended up with 23 episodes number wise, but only 22 actual episodes. So in all of these kind of little tidbits mm-hmm. that you've um, sussed out, you know, some you knew before and some that were brand new that you'd never learned before. Um, was the, was there any that really st- stuck out to you as really like, wow, I had no idea and I did not expect to learn that? I wish I could say yes, but I kind of, I mean, I think a lot of that happened in our podcast, like started some of mm, that started like, you know, right. maybe not all of it made it, uh, onto the podcast and someone went into the book, but, but you know, like the big revelation that we had found when we talked to Bob and that's kind of when the book had started anyway, was the whole idea of pink not being because somebody was colorblind, but because of a stylistic choice. And yes, he was colorblind, but he was not the colorist on the show. That was Irv Kaplan. And it was just, that was sort of his color scheme. He liked the the purples, pinks, greens. And so you would have to believe that by the time He-Man rolled around and when he had like pink shaggy pants or whatever, that (laughs) someone would have said, hey... Uh, you're colorblind and this is not an appropriate color for this or whatever. But no, it was just, that was his, that was his thing. Uh, Hal Sutherland was, you know, colorblind for certain things, but he was not making the color choices. So for us at that time, that was, you know, that was an urban legend uh, that I'd always, I'd repeated it too. That it's like, oh, you know, the, the uh, art director was colorblind and that's why everything's pink and weird. And but no, it was just a, it was a choice. Yeah. That was one that I'd always unfortunately you know heard and parroted right around as well so i'll have to figure out who i told that all to yeah, right. set them straight make them buy your book <laughs> that was the one thing that had already been said so i'm like well i'm not, not giving anything away by saying that no um but i did love seeing like all of the the ships that were designed for the first episode that ended up getting put into the time trap um mm-hmm. you know there there's a ship in there that i had never seen all the different like orthographic drawings and uh, Bob Klein, who did like 85% of the ships, uh, was a naval illustrator. So he kind of know, knew how to draw all the different, you know, basically the stuff that people at Trek Yards would be very excited about because it's got the top view and the side view. And all, and you don't necessarily see it in the show, but, you know, you got that. I was re- The one thing I really was hoping to see was some a drawing of the Bonaventure that somehow that survived into something. Mm. But nope. So I don't know where that is, but someone has it. Maybe. <laughs> but yeah, so like, and, and the bloopers, you know, the, the, the idea that, uh, oh, you know, they left his arm off or whatever, that there's actually only so many layers of acetate that you can put on before the color underneath it starts getting murky and, and you just can't, like all the different layers have a different color value. So they can, so it looks consistent. 
but I think you can only do six pieces of acetate. And then after that, it just, the, the acetate itself starts to yellow and it's just, you don't get a good picture. So sometimes if there was a lot of things moving around, they would have to make a choice. Like what's the piece in this image that somebody's not going to notice the most. And apparently mm-hmm. Fat Albert, their TV show, that was the one that was most notorious because you'd see, see people's like arms and heads missing in scenes and stuff and in like a classroom <laughs> scene because they had so many kids and people moving around. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> So that was that was interesting to to learn too. I think that was that was something I didn't know before. It wasn't like shocking, but it was just like, oh, well, that explains a lot. Where there are real bloopers, where like, well, I don't know why they colored it that person, you know, that color, or, or they flipped it or whatever. But mm-hmm. there are times where it was a conscious choice because they had to do that or scrap the scene. And now they rue the invention of dvds and blu-ray yeah <laughs> <laughs> there's one mystery in here though i, I okay. found interesting the the pirates of orion I'll yes. say orion there's several voices the uh, characters that the voice is unknown it's it's mm-hmm. yes okay this is this is where um i think my my writing partner and i would get into the this is where we had some disagreements right it's unknown like 90 percent probable that it's Lou Scheimer or, you know, a specific person, but we couldn't get the a hundred percent, um, verification. verification. And we didn't, yeah. and it, it is good that we did not do that. But I, I was always like, can we just put thinks is, you know, <laughs> like, and then that name. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, there, the, the, most of the times that you, we can't verify, I believe it's, I think it was Lou. Um, because he did a lot of voices. He did the narr- opening narration for Arc Two, and and there are places in there where we've we've noted where we know it's him. Um, yeah, there's we like what, I wanted to know the voice of the alien in um the very first episode, the one that's all sped up and weird sounding. The hmm. that sort of looks like uh, Keenzer from the 2009 uh, <laughs> Star Trek or the the Kelvin universe. Um. But, you know, I actually put it into audition and slowed it down and tried to stop the warping of the tape. Like, can we figure out who this is? No. Um, it, hmm. You know, a lot of times it could have just been anybody that they just grabbed somebody. But um, so, yeah. So those voices, unfortunately, with that, that 100% verification, we couldn't couldn't figure that out. But and we, I did like the, the, the I don't know if this was out in the world anywhere, but the uh, there was always uh, confusion if it was Majel Barrett um, doing the voice of um, Lara in um, the Jihad, hmm. and it it wasn't because she was having morning sickness when she was uh, pregnant with Rod. Um, so she was out, and they used um, Laura Webb, I think it was her name, uh, who was in the Fantastic Voyage, and uh, so that was the actress. So that was kind of fun that uh, we we did get verification on that because that's. Um, this was the the other really cool thing. The the person who wrote the counterclock incident, Fred Bronson, was the publicist. So he had all this information of of you know, I was the one who called and and had somebody take the first picture of Rod when he was born and stuff like that. So he knew like who was out at the time, and um, he came to our theater uh, to watch a, an episode of our improvised, uh, Star Trek show. And he goes, I have a present for you because we were in the middle of writing the book at the time. And it was before crunch time. Otherwise I probably never would be in the theater. Um, and he hands me this package. I'm like, what is this? He goes, I was getting something out for a friend and this literally fell on my head. I'm like, okay. And it was all of the press releases that he wrote for 
Star Trek, the animated series. And it would, would go out to like newspapers or TV shows to run. But because it was a cartoon, no one was going to, because he treated it like it was a Star Trek show, like it was a Sunday or, a, you know, an evening Star Trek show. And there were quotes from Matt Jeffries in there about the, the animated series ship design, like all these things that they would never have been probably ran anywhere. So they might be the first time that people are seeing them. Um, but that's where we got a lot of great quotes from from the people for each of those episodes, because he had each each thing had a, a press release. And we also cleared up some dates, air dates, apparently, with that, too. So, And it's one of those things now that there's so much information in this book, it's like, I have to refer to it sometimes because it's like, I'm having problems keeping it all in my head. <laughs> well, it's great to have that reference now as well. I mean, not just for all of us, but for <laughs> you as well. That's really cool. <laughs> well, before we wrap up, I guess, is there anything uh, else that you would like to add other than, you know, telling all of our listeners to go out and grab this book? Because... <laughs> I think it's really cool and I really enjoyed reading it. Well, I, I'm happy that the, you know, the publisher worked with us to like get it at a decent price point too. That's what I was like. I didn't want this to be a $54 book or something like that. So that was, that mm -hmm. was great that they were, you know, willing to work with us with that. So, um, yeah, no, go out and get the book. Um, you can find me online, uh, at geek filter on Instagram and Twitter. And if you're in the L.A. area, I am in an improvised Star Trek show called Night Shift. We are the crew that take over for the USS McGinley when they're sleeping. They have we have a main show called the Improvised Generation. We're the we're the night crew. Um, and that's we're doing the last half of our first season uh, Fridays in October at eight o'clock. Excellent. Well, definitely, if you're in the area, you should check that out for sure. Dang, I want to go. <laughs> I know. Me too. Right. <laughs> Fridays uh, in October. Eight o'clock, <sighs> Impro Theater at uh, Hollywood and Vermont. Basically, I'm going to be uh, in LA October fourth, but I was going to fly out that afternoon. Now I'm ooh. rethinking that. <laughs> hmm. I'm not even in the right country. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. This was a really great discussion. It was great and to catch up. Yeah, definitely. yeah, for sure. And I do mean it to everyone out there. Grab this book; like it is beautiful. You will not regret it. Yes, yeah, so it's a great book. <laughs> And I just gave it five stars today on Goodreads because uh, hey, it's that you. good. And uh, I hope you do the same thing for Star Trek Lower Decks after that show comes yeah. out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, that's, you know, that that's definitely why I think that, that uh, Saturday Morning Trek is going to have to come back because we actually will have new animated shows to talk about. And yep. yes, actually, the... the uh, Mike McMahon even like tweeted that he needed to get this book. So I'm like, we, we had an exchange back and forth. I said, yeah, but if I, if I do a book for, for you, I won't be able to go through a garage and look for 45 year old uh, paper. <laughs> it's like, it'll all be electronic. <laughs> oh, very cool. Well, thanks again for, for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's so great talking to Aaron because, you know, he's hosted shows here on Trek FM and he hasn't done it in about two years now. And I haven't talked to him one-on-one -on -one like that probably in about that same amount of time. So it was just great to even catch up with him uh, before and after we recorded here on the show. And then, you know, this book, it really is 
a great reference, a great historical document about the animated series. And I've really enjoyed that as I was rewatching the series. So it, it just was like perfect. That's one thing that, you know, I have so many fond memories of taking things like the Star Trek, the next generation companion by Larry Nemechek, having it open in front of me and watching episodes. And now to be able to do that with a new reference book for a series that I've never done that with before, that's really exciting. So, Thank you so much, Aaron and Rich, for your hard work on this book. It's it's so welcome. Um, yeah, it's definitely going to have an honored place in my Star Trek library for sure. Well, it's been fun talking about completing our Star Trek libraries today, but it's not the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Earl Grey. Okay, that's excellent. And it'll be interesting to see how we interpreted the topic because I know I may have interpreted it uh, maybe a little differently than others did. We'll see. Is this another time travel thing? No, I was, I was going to say no time travel for me as long as Jellicoe doesn't come into this. Sure. Okay, that's, so we'll make okay. that deal then. Awesome. <laughs> I'm in. All right. Literary treks. And, you know, the, the stakes are, are really big. You know, we'll, we'll get there, but, you know, this Borg ship threatens Earth and all this kind of stuff. And it just feels like it's it's a lot of really comic booky, over-the-top stuff that doesn't quite fit right with the novel that came before it and the novel that came after it, if that makes sense. <laughs> Primitive Culture. A look at history and culture through Star Trek. And Next Gen Arriving was was this sort of, wow, wow, this is, looks incredible. I know when we look at sort of first season Next Gen now, what we're going is, wow, this is really slow and stagey. But in fact, it was, it was incredible. It was absolutely um, game-changing. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Only because I was watching little bits of Emissary recently is that he would see himself wearing that awful purple swimsuit and think, oh, God, I can't wear that. <laughs> oh, my every, gosh. Every time I see it, I'm like, whoa, I'm really glad I'm not wearing 24th century clothing. <laughs> if you wanted me to murder an entire society, fine. <laughs> but I'm not wearing that bathing suit. Too revealing. Oh. That's where I draw the line. <laughs> That's funny. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. And if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all of the details. Perks can include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Those are available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. 
requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways you can do that. The best place to join in on the larger conversation is in the Babel Conference. It's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select the Brady Kids. I'm sorry, Literary Treks, and that will come right to us. And you can also find the network on Twitter at Brady Kids. I'm sorry, at Trek <laughs> FM and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Trek FM. <laughs> you can also find us on our Goodreads group, where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as the currently reading section so you know what's coming up for future shows. Plus, there are great conversations happening about all the books and comics. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. We'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shea Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM Network and for being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Now, Bruce, when you're not traveling through the Guardian of Forever to make sure that your younger self can safely cross the Vulcan's Forge Desert and complete the Kazwan, ooh, I remembered all those names, where can we find you? You can find me with a Aichaya, if that's how you pronounce it. on uh, twitter at admiral underscore rex and you can find me on the star wars report talking about star wars of course we have rise of skywalker coming soon here in december so that's really cool and the mandalorian coming to disney plus in november that's really cool too and then uh, you can also find me here on the network with brandy jackala talking about discovery live from the edge and then, so Discovery, when it comes back on, we'll do those live shows again. And then you can always find me in the Babel Conference. And Dan, when you're not found in a garage going through a bunch of animated cells and your shirt tunic is changing colors from scene to scene, where can people find you? And there's that one time though, my insignia appeared on the wrong side. It was, it was really weird, but... Uh... When I'm not dealing with continuity errors in my life, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on YouTube.com slash Productions, where I have a YouTube channel talking mostly about Star Trek. And of course, you can find me in the Babel Conference as well. Well, thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.